Hey, if you like this content, check out our friends at GNA Podcast. Find them in the description or on Facebook at GNA Podcast. You love them as much as we do. Hey, Pepin. Yo, yo. You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about um, the sexualization of objects. That sounds kind of sexy. Yeah, I mean, just like how a box can be really sexy sometimes. Like all those corners and stuff and... Yeah, all those sharp corners and how it just opens right up. Wait, do you mean a box like... I mean like a cardboard box. Oh, that's what I thought you were talking about, but then box like a... You know, know, I I think we need to talk. Welcome back. So glad you guys could join us. I am here once again with my best friend, the snazziest dresser I know, Nathan Pepin. How's it going, Pepin? Um, I'm feeling pretty snazzy here. I got my purple and white shirt thing. Yeah, it's checkered. You got pants on today. That's nice. Uh, well, y- 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 usually there's um, usually there's socks, but today it's pants. And also, not just one candle, but two candles. Oh my god goodness i had somehow overlooked that you know i do have to say though the checkers on the shirt and the stripes of the socks do kind of clash you don't want two patterns going at the same time just gonna throw that up there so the socks are like a peacocking technique so the idea is if someone's looking at your socks they're looking at much more than your socks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but a flat color that's maybe a bright color might work a little better than a clashing pattern I, i'm not i'm not trying to match my socks Oh, oh. It, 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 then you're doing quite well. The idea was not to match my socks that way. Oh. People would. It's like you don't technically have to match your socks because socks are like just kind of like a uh, what the fuck's going on here kind of thing. Mm. I, I could have matched them, but I decided not to because I want people to say, "Hey, your socks don't match." Oh, well, then it's worked swimmingly. You could call it peacocking, but maybe you couldn't. But I, I think it's kind of like peacocking. It's kind of like what the everything else is good why the socks now there are people out there who find socks attractive on their own like even if they're not in any way involved in a person yeah yeah i probably i mean people find like anything attractive like a roller coaster the lady got married to a roller coaster i believe Mm. or at least wanted to but how does stuff like that work why do people find things attractive? When you might things like objects, like things which are clearly objects. Yes. I don't quite know. Because I mean, like, if you if there's a a a box and it's in the shape of a sexy lady and it has a sexy lady painted on it, uh, even if it's not resembling, even if it's not like you know a, a portrait of a real person say like Marilyn Monroe it's just some something that somebody created it that's at least you can understand why it might be seen as sexy because it's resembling something that is of human form but something that's just like a square cardboard box some people would find that sexy yeah and see this is where I have a hard time relating to people and you know not putting other people down but it's it's like uh, things like Really abstract objects are hard to understand, like their, really to their beauty or their sexiness. Like, 
some people question, say, attraction to animated things, which I think is duly justified. Because you know, animated things, like say animated women or men or whatever you're into, fairies. But let's just say animated women, for, for instance. It's, it's like they're obviously not real people. They have elements of real people. Right, they 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 kind of drawn as people, but it's it's a like a representation of a person. But plenty of people have an attraction to animated women, and how that kind of functions in the brain is just interesting because it, it's it's not necessarily that the uh, the sexual appraisal mechanisms would apply to that thing, like like to, to my mind they should just apply to what they apply to, which is like you no know, real people, but they, they apply more generally to animated women, men, and boxes which is it's hard to fathom how or why mm, for sure i mean animated i can definitely see much more than than something like that because um like you said it has all of the elements of of a, a real person but isn't isn't an animated woman the same thing in this context as a picture of a woman would be definitely has more elements in common but it's not like like when you see an animated woman you don't think that's a woman you think that's like a, a picture it's a 2d representation Th- though though I, w- I will admit i think many people can admit this there's that movie uh who framed roger rabbit and it had jessica rabbit in it and jessica rabbit was beautifully beautifully animated almost like a real person and very sexy in that so one of the few animated characters you could be like yeah i could, I could see why someone would be down for that but you gotta see cool world cool, cool world yeah it's the same general concept you have live actors in an animated world um but it has sexy animated women in that too are they are they very well done uh yep but like in in video games, there's um there's there's different. I mean, there's varying levels. When you start out with like a, the sprite level of like Princess Peach or or Princess, whatever, uh, the first one was, they when they like that's a I feel like a lot harder. You you have to perverse that much more than something like uh, uh Dragon's Lair, the the chick from that. I think Daphne or something like that. Um which she was drawn in a sexual manner. So I think there's definitely varying levels to that. That's, that's a good point. I guess it goes into imagination as well as um, like what people create in their minds versus the actuality. Because people can fill in gaps in their mind, and maybe that's something to do with animation. Like Princess Peach, or actually here's, here's a good example, uh, Samus Aran from uh, Metroid, there's that whole special thing where she uh, reveals herself to be a woman at the end of the first game, if you beat it with certain conditions. And I guess some guys or some you know small boys found that very titillizing, but there's, there's nothing there to see. It's just a little you know a couple pixels essentially. You know, I mean like a 32 pixels, 52 pixels, or probably 64 or something like that, but. It's like there's nothing really to get like worked up about, but people did. Laura Croft, in her her, her infamous uh, kind of like triangle boobs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, apparently, back in the day, lots of little boys were masturbating to that. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like what's there doesn't make sense to masturbate or kind of like have that emotion towards. But 
it might be the filling in of details, like the imagination portion of that. Mm. So it's more like a, a jump start to your imagination, yeah. a starting place. Yes. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. I, I mean, I could just talk about my own experience with, uh, I used to play this WWE or F, I'm not sure it was at the time, but it was 3D, PlayStation 1, and like low polygon stuff. And uh, I really enjoyed the Brian Paintings matches that you could have. Hmm. They're they're pretty good. I mean, not not in like a not in like a boner popping way, but in a kind of like oh oh, this is kind of sexy. Hmm. And then when you see Trish Stratus come out, you know, and they're, with their uh, actual like entrance mm-hmm. stuff, and she's wearing all these bathing suits, you know, that's also kind of the nice portion of it. Hmm. And then you unlock the feature, we can just watch the video portion and just do that for hours. <laughs> Uh, see, wrestling was interesting for if we're talking about personal experiences for me because I never liked the women's matches because they were always just about sexualization, and that's not like I, I feel like it was like a slap in the face when you're watching a. I was watching wrestling for the wrestling, like <laughs> which is weird to say, I guess, because most people watch for the. The, the titties and ass and for the storylines, the crazy, ridiculous storylines. But I liked the art of actually wrestling. And the women, they sucked, like, really, really bad. They weren't trained properly. They were shown, like, the bare basics and said, just take your clothes off and people will like it. And that's not what I liked in it. The, the women that I found the most attractive were those who were the best at wrestling, which is why I did get a, have a crush on Trish Stratus, even though she hits, like, None of the things that I find attractive in a woman, I found her attractive because she was such a good wrestler and she cared about her craft. Yeah, I, I, I could see that. And it's definitely true that the uh, WWE at the time, or at, during that peri- period, the diva period, mm-hmm. was more focused on just hot girls g- getting down to uh, their bra and panties, which it, it's... Mm, it, maybe back then it was more... I don't know. I don't say more acceptable, but it's it's like nowadays, it's just you know, just you say you tell people, hey, just go online, find some porn if you really want that. You know, don't watch a titillating show. Just just watch some porn. You know, there's no reason to like watch people stripping down like that. It doesn't, mm-hmm. doesn't quite make sense. So I don't know if the market's as there. So maybe that's one reason that why it doesn't exist, but. There definitely was this sexualization of women with the WWE, and it definitely did lower the quality of the product. But on a counterpoint, I would say that to a large degree, the men are sexualized in certain kind of ways, because there's these exceptions to this, obviously. There's a lot of like fat guys in the WWE, but a lot of the guys you see are big, tall, muscular, oily-looking men. And for whatever reason, I mean... Females tend not to be like this, but guys, they're kind of attracted to guys who are muscular. Like, no, not attracted to like in like a, you know, in a uh, I want to fuck you sense, but when a guy thinks another guy looks good, that guy's often muscular. Like, they have like big biceps, you know, big pecs. They're strong and they're, they're very oily for some reason. Mm. I'd say uh, women definitely find that appealing as well. A, a large, a large percentage of, of women. Um, but I mean, even the fat guys were sexualized. Remember Mark Henry? Oh yeah, that's right. Sexual chocolate. 
Yeah, yeah. And they had a, there was a character on there that was uh, Val Venus. His shtick was, he was a porn star. Yeah, like yeah. That was his entire shtick. It's kind of more of a joke with Val Venus, but I guess it was still kind of a thing, though. Yeah, I mean, it, that was his character, that was his persona, and everybody was a joke. I mean, that's that was the whole point of the show, is that everybody was like this hyper hyperbole. But I think the biggest difference there is that Val Venus and Sexual Chocolate were two out of the... 50 60 superstars every single woman was sexualized every single one in and not in like a in like a very deliberately sexualized way the only one who really wasn't was china and that changed the second she posed nude in playboy they immediately she was a sexual object again and it kind of took away a lot of the power that she had fought for in the first place but in the 90s that was part of what women wanted to feel powerful was to be able to feel sexy. So I, I remember that was a huge deal for women at the time that it like, it made that it was empowering and like uh, Charlie's angels was big at that time. And like, that was empowering to them for them to strip off all their clothes and be in scantily cloud stuff on and kicking ass at the same time. And there, there was the duality there. So I think that people find women to be sexy in general, at least the bodies. And I think that there's utilization of that sexiness which gives them power and ability to kind of succeed in those kind of different avenues. It's kind of like a weird two-way street where it's between like exploitation and utilization. In a similar way, I think men, I think a sexual trait of men is aggressiveness. And I would say that the aggressiveness in wrestlers, in particular male wrestlers, is kind of a, not, I don't think exploit is the word, but it's utilized. So, you know, men are often more aggressive with the wrestling. They take higher risks usually. And it's kind of seen as a feature that which is kind of desirable. So I think it's a different coin side of the coin, though. Or it's, it's kind of different in a way. I'm being a little bit rambly here. So, I mean, it sounds like you're saying that they're just taking things that are already sexualized and pumping them up. Yeah, well, it's so you take the aggressive nature of men and you take the uh, the the sexual nature of women and you pump those up and that's what people want to see. Yeah, and well, it's also like there is the you know the corporate executives, all the directors and you know managers who are they see a young beautiful woman and they think I'm gonna use her young beautiful charms, her her body to make money off of. So it's kind of objectifying women in that sense. But I also think that the woman is well well aware that she has power through her body, and she's using that power as well to kind of gain a bit. Now, the question would, as far as exploitation versus utilization, I think would be to what degree she is actually using her body by choice in that way, and to what degree she is being being unjustly, say, extracted from. Mm-hmm. So it's like. I think exploitation is where someone is being taken advantage of. So, so they have this, you know, the autonomy over their body, and that's kind of taken away. And these people are just using her just for her body, and she's in that kind of weird state of uh, of ext- extraction. You know, you know what I'm saying? Like, so it's like if you have somebody who is uh, at the workforce, let's say they're they're just a worker in a manufacturing line, and they have the use of their body, their hands. And let's say that uh, they, the employer will work that person to death. 
and they overwork them and they overuse them. And the person's putting in this amount of effort, but they're only getting this much back. And the amount of effort this person's putting in is way, way more than they're receiving, such to a point where this person's actually suffering from these people who are hiring them. So that was a, you know, an example of a exploitation, and you could talk about sweatshops with that. In a similar way, I think you could talk about someone using the power of their hands and their body to kind of produce something which you know, they manifest themselves and where they kind of gain in, say, proportion to what they put in. And that I don't think there's a problem with. I don't think there's a problem with people using their sexuality, you know, be it men through aggression or women through their bodies, of gaining. But I think, I think the question of exploitation is kind of a tough one to... But when when you're in the public eye, such as you know the not in the the we're talking, I, I assume you and I right now are talking late '90s wrestling more than more than anything, which is a weird avenue to go down. Late '90s wrestling, <laughs> late late '90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like the the it was such a popular program at the time, and these women were in a, pl- a position of power as far as being seen is concerned and being an example. Do you think that the use of their body as a sexual object only, though benefiting them, was in other ways hindering those who were looking up, both male and female, males especially in putting in their mind, women, this woman is only on the show when there's sexy things, so that's all she's good for? Yeah, I, I definitely think it does hinder those different aspects. And, you know, you could talk about, you know, whether, I mean, it's, it's kind of a judgment call, you know, at, at the end of it, whether it's beneficial. So, so it's beneficial for what? So it, it's beneficial for furthering the objectification of women. If you want sex to have power, then, you know, that, that's the way to do it. But if you want wrestling to be about wrestling, if you want uh, it to be about competence and athletic ability, then it's, it's not the way to go. Like, I mean, it was a soap opera. They wanted wrestling to be about views, and that's all that matters. Essentially, I think that's what's that called—the corporate corporatization of like, uh, or commoditization of uh, media and people, mm-hmm. where it's not any publicity is good publicity. It, kind of those kind of ideas where it doesn't quite matter what produces the views or the intrigue; it just matters that it happens. And I guess that's where it gets even more confusing because is let's let's say that you know I think we can agree that the sexualization of women in the WWE was a problem in the late '90s, or was it WWF? I don't know. Who cares? But I don't know about problem, but I could see that in some ways it could be a detriment to the the learning of those who are watching as far as a younger audience goes. To be fair, it wasn't directed towards a younger audience at the time. Now it is, but it was not at the time. Um, so maybe that's not a fair thing to be throwing at them at all. If they're just trying to appease the monkey brain of those who are watching, then they did a damn good job of doing so, and it was fucking entertaining. So, But I mean, it's like, are we responsible for what kids think when they listen to this podcast? Well, we we put adult tags on everything, and we... Minimum PG-13 every episode, even if we don't swear, because we know that all of the implications that this show has are, we're not directing this towards kids. This, that's not what, what this, is, this is for. 
Mm. It's tough. It's tough. It's tough. Really, really tough to discuss because there's so many different ways you could go as far as what kids should be exposed to, like on a sexual level. It's like I remember watching this uh, docu, not documentary, but it was like a movie about the Native Americans, and some guy gets kind of like he's like he's like a, just a Westerner. He gets kind of caught up in the tribe, and he uh, ends up living with them and. It's like the uh, the husband or the Native American husband and wife to start having sex, you know, in front of the kids. Not in front of the kids, but you know, just in the tent, like it's nothing. When the kids are just kind of next to them sleeping and stuff, on the under the covers, of course. But it's like sex wasn't like just like a mm-hmm. a thing like that, and it's just something they grew up around. And I've heard of other places like that, like in India, where were you talking about dances with wolves? I don't know. I think you are. Go on. But. Uh, there's other I've heard of other cultures where sex isn't kind of seen as like this like huge thing like you might a kid might see come across like a uh, couple having sex somewhere you know it's just kind of like oh okay that's it, it, it's something they're exposed to it's not just like oh my god and you gotta imagine like you know in our past that's that's something that would be there as far as like the but it's hard to know the effects in the modern culture as well because certainly maybe they're exposed to it in the past, but maybe we're exposed to it far more now. Maybe it does have an effect on the brain. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a hard calculation to make, like to say whether it is good or bad for the youth because, I don't know, I feel like some in some ways we're kind of wired to be exposed to sex. But in the other ways, I think maybe we're not wired to be exposed to sex in the ways we are now. Mm. So it's more along the lines of what, like what kind of exposure matters as well. Like, um, if you were, if you're exposed to like only like negative things in relation to sex, um, how will that shape your view of it versus if you're exposed to it as if it's a normal, just part of, part of life. Um, or if you're exposed to it in a classroom setting where this is, this is how sex happens, like the very very different. I think there's a, I think it's um, the meaning of life. Monty Python. Um, they there's like a class, and in the class he's teaching about sex, and he brings in his wife, and they have sex like in front of the class, <laughs> and like that's the joke, is that like this is sex. Watch, and like he's explaining while he's fucking her. Like, <laughs> so, so I mean. It's that's that's super British comedy where it's like, well, how far does the the education of sex go? Like, do we actually show porn? Do we give a live example? Like, how how far does does that education need to go? And how much of that is the teacher responsibility, the you know state provided teacher, or how much of that is a, a parent's responsibility? And how does that shape a child's mind to what they sexualize in the future? I do think you have a good point there because there's definitely negative, there's negative ways to present sexuality which will fuck someone up. You know, obviously like sexual abuse, you know, rape and those kind of things will obviously fuck people up, like especially the, young, the younger they are. And can. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah, can. Can. Not, not always. Mm-hmm. But uh, there's, it's like knowing what will fuck people up is the hard part. Mm-hmm. And there's even a case to be made that maybe, you know, say 95% of people won't be fucked up by this, but 5% of people will be like, you know, just destroyed by this 
thing that should just be normal. Mm-hmm. So that's hard to really, really calculate. Also, in relation to the whole Monty Python thing, it's kind of funny. I I, I tend to watch watch sex documentaries, not as much as lately, but I used to watch a lot of them because it's it's interesting. And there's a British one I was watching, and this was aimed more at uh, it seemed to be more aimed at students for some reason. Uh, the whole concept was that this British educational thing, they're bringing in real sex into the classroom to teach students about sex. So they're teaching high schoolers about it, and they'd bring in real live people and you know show off their bodies and stuff and kind of show them how things worked. And so it wasn't just like, oh, here's a chart where... You know, this is the penis. Oh, look, hey, you can see through the penis and there's a urethra right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and you see the testes inside here. It, it was more like, like, oh, here's a naked dude. Oh, oh, yeah, he's he's pulling apart his uh, his ball sack to show you the scrotum and stuff like that. And I, I feel like, I, I, I forget exactly, but I'm pretty sure they also showed people having sex. Mm. So it was a very hands-on no, not hands-on. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. It, 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 it just took a left real hard. <laughs> but it, it, was a, it was a very live and personal demonstration. Mm-hmm. And, and at least for as, as far as my mind, like, I don't know the answer, but I kind of like that approach. Mm. I think that if you were going to teach people sex, that you need to be like very upfront about it. Like if, if, I think it normalizes it too. Because if you bring in like live people... And you know, be like boys and girls or whatever, or, or men and women. Let's say men and women be less creepy, and you just have them like take their clothes off in the class. It's, it's kind of weird, obviously, but I, I think it makes a good point. And if you show them like sexual material, but you kind of present it more like a, like this is what sex is. I, I think that's better than showing you know having them expose themselves to porn. Mm. I think in um in a brave new world, uh, is that Huxley? Uh, yeah, Aldous Huxley. Um, in that book, they all of the children were always naked, and they ran around naked, and they they were allowed to um, touch each other like in sexual places, and like that was that was just part of the learning process of growing up. And in that book, it was super desexualized; like you couldn't have sex with the same person over and over again. It was very much encouraged to have sex with a bunch of different people. So as to not gain an attachment towards any one person. Uh, so that was like taking the sexualization out of partnership and out of like uh, relationships. It was just making sex a thing that it was like making sex a commodity, a thing that they you like had everybody had and everybody everybody consumed sex. And it wasn't a, there was no personal aspect associated with it. And I feel like that's where a lot of the 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 intricacies of sex come in is in the relationship involved in sex and why prostitution is illegal and why somebody can marry a roller coaster and we're like what why like that doesn't that doesn't make sense the roller coaster cannot contribute to your partnership and where does the and and then some people are going to think of it, you know, in that way. And how are they contributing to the partnership? And other people are going to think of it like, how do you have sex with a with a roller coaster? Like, so I, I think that that plays a, a huge role in how people can sexualize things that aren't necessarily sexual because it's not about sex; it's about 
the emotions that are tied to that. Mm-hmm. There's a lot there. There's a lot there to think about. One thing that was kind of caught me there was uh, the Brave New World mm-hmm. example, because that's not a part I understood with the book. Mm-hmm. And I think you actually may have just explained it there. Because a lot of the book is in response to the manufacturing revolution. Particularly, I think he was inspired by uh, Henry Ford and his uh, his assembly line for the model car. For sure, they they replaced any mention of God with Ford. They said, "Oh, thank Ford, you're here." Oh yeah, that's right, that's right. That, that's that's. It was very not subtle. Yeah, very, very okay, very not subtle. I don't remember this book that well. I guess I I remember it better than I thought. <laughs> but uh, I, so I, I know that. Ella, from what I remember, Aldous Huxley wasn't like a, uh, he wasn't saying this, uh, was, he wasn't presenting this as a dystopian universe here. It was more of a utopian universe for him. But the argument I think was being made, I think the thing as you're saying is that when sex is open and available for anyone, it's, it's kind of like he's making the analogy to a manufacturing line or the commodification where you can have sex you know, anytime, anyone, Anytime with anybody you want, you know, you don't have to use the same person twice, so on and so forth. And in a way, it kind of takes the sexuality out of sex, like the commodification, which is kind of like a weird paradox there. But in in the same way, it does relate to prostitution, as you said, because the argument with prostitution is it takes the 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 romance or the the, the emotional element out of sex. In, in a way, it kind of makes the sexual value of any particular potential partner less, it, it, it demotes that value. It kind of lessens it. Or that's that's the argument, at least. I would say it more makes it not a component. Like, what, like if you, if sex isn't a component in finding a partner, how does that change your, how you would find a partner? I see, I see. So it, it's more like you're looking for different criteria instead of like the the, the sex. Exactly. Th- thank you. That's a much better point. And I think that applies very well to what we were originally talking about here that always branches off. And I love it. Um, and that's the sexualization of non-human things of, you know, it can, it can change from be it uh, a, an anthropomorphic thing, like say a, a brony or or a furry or whatever, something that it's human-like, but it's not a human, and then it can change. It could be different all the way to a roller coaster, or a lady who married a train station, or um, or a box, as as our original example that we completely made up is. In that, it's what are you looking for in a relationship? It may not involve sex at all. Hmm. See, I feel like there's some social conservatism. I mean, not like in like a political sense, but it's social tradition where why people have an issue with those sorts of things, such as, you know, why we lambast people who want to get married to a roller coaster or they're sexually attracted to a box is because it doesn't fit in with the social tradition. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to relate to and conceptualize, even more so, as you're saying, or as I, as I believe you're saying, a lot of people have the natural connection between sex and romantic partnership. Like, like that's, that's kind of combined there. So when you, separate, when you separate those out 
when you separate those categories out completely. Why are you making a dick, dick jerk in motion with both hands like back and forth? <laughs> oh, that's subliminal. All right, keep going. When, when, when you separate those. When you, when you separate those. <laughs> Go on. Go on. The audience does not get the benefit of seeing your two fingers thrusting upwards towards the sky over and over. When, when you separate those out, it's hard for people to really see that because it's 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 around two categories which can't be separated into two different things. So if someone says they find a box to be sexual, that's kind of like, like what what what? I I wouldn't pursue a relationship with a box. How does that make any sense? And that, that's not not might not be what they say, but I think that's their point of reference. And in the same degree. The woman who uh, has that uh, thing for a roller coaster, um, she, she's romantically involved. She's in love with the roller coaster. It's not a sexual thing for her. So people say, you know, you can't have sex with a roller coaster. How, how, how are you supposed to like... Well, who knows? That roller coaster could have given her more of a sexual thrill than any person ever has. <laughs> it, it vibrates a lot. <laughs> I mean, it, it vibrates. You get the adrenaline. You get the excitement. She may have climaxed as the roller coaster climaxed. I mean, that's mutual climax, climaxing. That's a huge thing. But the, these, these objects are not able to consent. And that, to me, should, is kind of where there's a line between being able to marry something and, and not. Is, is an inanimate object able to consent to marriage? Does it need to consent? If the pers- if the only person who can consent is able to consent, that's that's complex, because I think yeah I think the argument you would make is you can't enter a contract with something that can't make contracts. Mm-hmm. So that's the reason why you can't marry children, for instance, because well I, I guess everyone wants. Your- that's the reason. That's the one reason. <laughs> I get you. Keep going. It's really part of the reason, though. Well, well, that's why you can't marry animals. Animals can't make contracts. You mm-hmm. can't make a deal with an animal. Mm-hmm. You can say you can make certain kind of deals, but it's not a real adult contract. It's not a something which is specified, whereas marriage is a contract. You can even say that dating, basic dating, is a contract. Many of those contracts would be nonverbal, such as, hey, don't cheat on me. Mm-hmm. But Which oh, I, to be fair... And just to put that out there, I think that if you're in a relationship with someone, everything that you consider to be a normal part of the contract, if it's really normal, you should explicitly say it. Yes. There should there should be no point where you're like, well, it's assumed. No, it's not because everybody's different. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Uh, there's definitely certain things that need to be said. Even if they're the social norm, I think it's important to put it out there because then there's no confusion. There's no chance... Of miscommunication. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah. What, so, you could perceivably, I mean, there's a possibility of signing a contract with a child. I mean, not saying that, that we don't find that to be acceptable for obvious reasons. Children don't have the cognitive cap- capabilities in the long-term sight to sign contracts. But you could perceivably sign a contract with a child, you know, on, on a technical sense. Not, it's not ethical. You could perceivably sign a contract with a, a monkey or a cow or have some sort of, like, say, nonverbal contract. It could at least be argued. There's no possibility at all for signing a contract with a rock. Mm-hmm. It, it, 
it's like well you could make the argument that the rock is always giving 100 percent consent i i think the argument for me would be that consent is just not applicable it's like mm-hmm. if, if you ask what color is number two it's, it's like it's, it's not that number two doesn't have a color it's that color is not it's a different concept this whole number realm it, these aren't connected at all mm-hmm. so, so that, that's to me but it's not that consent's being given or not given it's just consent that's, that's, not, that's not what rocks do mm-hmm. so then there's no issue if, it, if consent is not applicable to a rock then therefore there's no issue right it's, you could say there's no issue but the issue is is that a relationship is based on consent so it's it's like how you determine if two people have a relationship is if they both consented to that relationship. In this instance, sure, this person consented to a relationship with a rock or a box or a roller coaster, but that thing, it's not that they didn't give consent. It's not that they gave consent. It's just that consent is not possible. So there's just no relationship there. It. It's it's not like an applicable concept. This is like a little, little technical, philosophical mm-hmm. shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in actuality, the fact that they're not doing any harm. Yeah, yeah, agreed. As long as it's something that is, I mean, you could say is their property or is, or they're like the person who married the train station. Like she doesn't have any control over that train station. Just like you don't have any control over your partner in a in a marriage. Um, per se, you know what I mean? It's more like you, you guys are, are one unit, but you don't have direct control over what they can and can't do. And that's the same for an inanimate object. So I don't see it as a, as a negative thing. Um, it's definitely a bit more bizarre than, uh, what is quote traditionally normal. Um, but I mean, if you're not causing harm, who really cares would be my, um, how, how I would see that. But I myself in, my own brain can't would would never be able to to have a relationship of that nature because it just it doesn't make sense to me um and maybe i mean that doesn't necessarily that's not a bad thing in any way yeah i i'm i'm much the same way though i have to add the caveat that there is like my 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 say my political stance or my social my, my social stance on this, which is, I, I don't care. Y- you want to marry a train? Oh, okay. I don't care. But I'm not going to show any support to that. Like, like if I had a friend who wanted to marry a train, I wouldn't be happy for them. Mm. I, I, I wouldn't be able to fake my emotion for it. I, you know, my emotion would be, oh, that's, that's kind of weird. I mean, and what if that is that's the biggest desire in their life, and that makes them happy? Does their happiness not make you happy? Uh, it's still, it's still like oh, it's kind of weird. Uh, it, 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 it's it's not something which would be relatable to me. I mean, it's something I'd, I'd have to be honest about. It's you know, it's in it, it, it making that person happy does not like. It, it's not. I think the intersection of happiness for other people is, is where you have intersecting goals or values. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, if someone has a, a certain kind of kink in the bedroom, let's say they like uh, I don't know, putting on all that latex stuff and getting tied up, and that makes them happy. That's not something I care about if it's a friend. You know, 
I, that making that person happy is not like a thing for me because, you know, it's great that you do that in your bedroom. It's great that it makes you happy. It's not really something I need to know about. It's not something I really need to support because it's not really my, it's not, it's not an overlap for us. Now, if I was that person's uh, husband, well, then, then maybe that would be an intersection there. Maybe making that person sexually happy in that way would be an incentive for me to support that person in that thing. But there's no like real reason for me to be that. I mean, you could argue that marriage is a social thing, but it, it, it kind of defies my social logic, I guess. So it, it's it's. Wouldn't it, you be able to to take the empathetic empathetic route and say, I don't understand this as it is, but I can draw parallels to myself and how I would feel if I was in that situation. So okay, you're marrying a train. So this is the equivalent of me marrying my girlfriend. Oh, wow, I'm really happy for you in that sense, in the sense that you're, you're forcing a parallel. It wouldn't be genuine, though. That's just the problem. You, I could force a parallel. I could pretend, right? You, you can say a phase. You can play a phase. But you, I don't think I would be able to actually take it seriously in that sense. Mm. It's, it's, I think there's certain things where you can't pretend in that sense. And I'm being like overly honest right now hmm. about this. Oh well, it, I I don't think it would need to be pretend to empathize with somebody. That's the whole point of it being empathy. Otherwise, it's not empathy. So it's pretend because you're not because I wouldn't be empathizing. I'd be sympathizing. I understand this person has a connection with a train. Mm-hmm. I like I can I can understand like what they're saying. I can understand the concept, but I can't feel that emotion. I can't understand the logic which would have someone marry a train. It's not something I can empathize. I can't feel that. Whereas I can empathize with somebody who is getting married to a a person. Let's say I'm I'm getting married, right, to a to a woman, and are you able to empathize with me and how I'm feeling? Yeah. So why is that different than being married to a train? Because you're not. I'm marrying a woman. And your your empathy is with me marrying a woman in general, not necessarily that specific person, because you don't know that specific person to the level that I do. All you're doing is is sympathizing to the point that it you can feel the same way. Well, it's not that I'm sympathizing to the point, but it's that I am. I'd say that I'm wired to have empathy for relationships with humans. So for me, it's more general where, you know, let's say you're getting married to a man, mm-hmm. you know, that's also fine. Or getting married to a transgendered person or someone who is non-binary. That, that's, that's also something I could empathize with mm-hmm. because that's a person. Isn't that just the extent of yourself though? Yeah. Yeah. So, it, so why, my, I, I guess where my confusion is, is why can't you take that extent pretty much anywhere? I think because for, for, for me, it comes back to the idea of consent as well and also having a relationship with something. Mm-hmm. So as far as I am concerned, you can't have a relationship with something which is inanimate because that, th- pers- that, that thing can't consent. It can't interact with you in meaningful ways. Whereas a full-grown human adult has the capability of giving consent and interacting with you in a way which is a relationship. And that relationship is based upon the mutual consent. 
it, it's a furthering. You could see very emotional concepts there, which I could relate to, such as love, anger, lust, um, sexual desire. I guess that's, I guess that's lust. But it, you know, there's all these different emotions that would come out with that that I could relate to to that thing. Now you could also talk about other things such as things which you are into, but I'm not into. But I could have some sort of emotional connection to that. So let's say you really enjoy skiing. I'm not a skier. I don't like the cold. I don't like being out in that kind of that kind of uh, weather. But let's say you went a a ski trip to the application mount i don't know <laughs> some place some some place appellation go on uh, yeah i don't know you, you find it you get it you win a free ski trip for like a month and i'd be very very happy for you because that's something i could conceive i know that you really like skiing and skiing's a big part of your life and that i could see the amount of fun you'd have on that and if i wasn't skiing myself you know if skiing was a possibility for myself and something i enjoyed i could see the fun that would be had on that trip Whereas I can't foresee myself having a relationship with something which is inanimate because I don't think that's possible based off the, the confines of what relationships are. So I, I think it's the inability to put myself in that shoe. So, so in a relationship, there's two parties and both are trading these emotions back and forth. And that's a huge part of the relationship is what you're saying? I, I, I'm not saying that's a huge part of the relationship. I'm saying that is kind of what a relationship is. It's where both parties are voluntarily consenting to interact with each other on a continuing basis. And oftentimes, emotions are exchanged, but the exchange of emotions is how you relate to that. What if what if two people are in a relationship, and but only one of them genuinely feels all of these emotions towards the other person? The other one is like sociopathic or unable to to feel those same emotions but they agree to get married and the one who's the the one who's actually feeling all those emotions is giving out all those emotions but the other one is completely inanimate as it were in that department can that not be seen as a parallel not exactly because that other person is still giving consent and it's not seen as a parallel as well because your emotional, so, so let's say that couple, let's say Jane and Sue. Let's say Sue is the non-emotional one who's just kind of going along with it. They're kind of like a dead fish, just kind of latching on to this person or whatever. So in, in that case, and this happens a lot from various relationships, you tend not to be happy for those people. You tend to think, hey, you know, I forget which one is which, but hey, Sue, Jane, Jane's a dead fish here. Jane's not really involved. Jane doesn't really care about you. You should, you should, you should actually go with somebody who cares about you. Yeah, you guys are agreeing to be together. Yes, you guys have a relationship, but I'm not feeling much for that relationship. I can't empathize with your relationship. I don't think there's much going on there. It doesn't seem like there's much fire. When's the last time you had sex? When's the last time you had a connection? What's, when's the last time you guys kissed? When's the last time you had a heart-to-heart conversation? And what if all of those things were being met, but they just weren't being reciprocated? That, that's, that's, that's the, that, that'd be the issue, though. But what if they felt like it was being reciprocated? Uh, that, that, that's, that was all, it was all in their head. So let's, let's say Sue is the one who's making stuff up in her head. Let's say she feels like everything's being reciprocated and everything's fine, but Jane's just kind of not feeling that at all. Mm-hmm. 
if I was friends with Jane, I would talk to Jane and have Jane break up because the whole relationship is built on a, a figment. It, it's mm-hmm. not there. She, her, her, her heart's not in it. Mm-hmm. Where it would, you know, Sue might feel enamored and you see people like this sometimes where they think everything's amazing with the relationship and that every, everything is great. Oh yeah, the, Jane totally loves me. Jane did this for me, blah, blah, blah. And it's like not, none of it's true or mm-hmm. it's all just fabricated. It's a, uh, it's a infatuation. Mm-hmm. So, so, but it's a very so, like complex social problem, and you know, if it if if she's happy in the in with what's what she perceives, is there anything wrong with that? Again, it may not be my problem, which is kind of like the intersection of values. Because if I don't know Jane, I don't know Sue. Why? Why well, do I care? Well, Sue's your friend. So, so if, if Sue is my friend. I want to make sure she's living in reality. Mm-hmm. I want to make sure that she's not having a relationship with something which is a figment. If mm-hmm. if Jane doesn't actually care about her, then it's something there. I say I would say, okay, okay, Sue, pay attention. Is Jane really acting like this? Mm-hmm. Every time you talk to Jane, Jane doesn't seem to care. Jane Jane just seems like she got stuck in a relationship with you. Mm-hmm. But that's a very personal conversation and, and you know, it's, it's hard to really assess, but you could, you could say that there's a happiness there, but it's, a, it's, I don't think it's realistic to say it would be stable and the degree which would be stable is the degree to which there is instability. It, like, like it, it, it only lasts so long. I, th- I think in real life, you know, maybe just hypothetical couples which could last out like that. Because of various, you know, uh, genetic temper temperaments, but it, it's I don't think it's a I don't think it's a feasible explanation in general. Mm-hmm. I think in general, if you see a relationship where one person is totally in love, head over heels, the other person's not, they're gonna break up soon. Because the person who's not head over heels is gonna be like, I don't I don't want to be in this anymore. Mm-hmm. Either that, or they stay married for thirty years and they just hate each other and have a terrible life. Mm-hmm. But but again, the, the factor there is, and this is why it differs for me from, say, Jane and Sue to Jane and uh, Mr. Rock, is that I'm not just assessing one person's emotions and feelings and consent. I'm assessing both people's emotions, feelings, and consents. So not just, not just Jane, but also Sue. Mm-hmm. And in the case of Sue and Mr. Rock, I can't assess Mr. Rock's feelings because feelings aren't applicable to Mr. Rock. Mr. Rock doesn't have feelings. Mr. Rock doesn't have emotions. Mr. Rock can't give consent because mm. those aren't even applicable concepts. But th- that's, th- that's just myself, though. Again, I don't care. But for me to feel something for, for, uh, for Sue, it needs to be something that has consent, which has emotion, which has love, which has something to it. And if that's not being reciprocated on the other end, or if it's a, if it's a figment in her head, that's also something I can't support. Because uh, you can't support delusion in people because that's just going to rip them apart. Mm. So for you, love has to be completely reciprocal? No. No, I mean, no. It, it, but there has to be a relationship there. Because mm-hmm. well, love is a very like, high-level concept, and people will go through a variety of emotions but there has to be something to the relationship if you're going to support it. If, you know, sometimes you support things that have like a good gesture or good faith, like your, 
your friend gets married to a girl that you don't really like, but you know they seem happy or they seem alright. They got married. It's like you're not sure if the relationship is that great, but you know you'll support your friend because it's you know okay, it's his choice. Uh, I'm happy for him. It's good. I'm glad he's getting married. But you you know if it's not something you're totally involved in or you really know much about, it's maybe not your place to kind of get involved. It it it's a very hard thing. And to be clear. Um, somebody marrying a rock versus somebody finding a rock sexually attractive are two completely and utterly different things that may cross over in a Venn diagram in a little spot. Yeah, yeah. And I think that connects to what we are saying earlier where it's like what might be perceived as weird with these sort of things is all the sexualization of objects or the romanticization. Of, I don't know how to say it. The romanticization of objects is that these are things that usually are linked together, but then being separated out in these ways is just different for some, some people to kind of comprehend. Not myself. I can see how they'd be separated. Uh, I know much with, with you, you. Sexuality for you is very linked to competence or ability. Whereas with me, it's, I, I can kind of just see a girl as being sexy. Like, I, like we've, we've had times where I'm like, wow, that, that girl was hot. And you're like, uh, no, she seemed like a dick. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, no, no, no. She she had great boobs. And you're like, Nate, do you see how she was talking? Like, she sounded like a baby. There are tons of people who have great boobs. But somebody was able to, never mind. Okay. We're gonna go. <laughs> okay. Yes, we are very different in that way, Nathan, for sure. Um, and then that, I know we're, we're heading towards the end here. That reminds me of a, a, a clip from Rick and Morty where um they the one where they go inside the universe and the universe and the universe or the miniverse and the tinyverse and the microverse or whatever are you familiar with that episode maybe uh i but, don't quite remember it but. well anyway they're they're lost in the tiniest universe for like years and years and years and morty's off with the tree people and when Rick finds him again, Morty's like, it sucks here. I want to go home. I masturbated to an overly curvy rock the other day because he hadn't seen any women. So like something <laughs> very, very subtly feminine or sexual, like a curvy rock, he was able to take his imagination and turn that into something like overly sexual to the point where he can get sexual satisfaction from it. So that may play a role in some of what we're talking about here in that um maybe it has to do with sexual drive being so intense that anything can be found sexual yeah yeah and maybe sexual elements as well are taken from things they've done studies where they find that like when men look at like uh sexy sports cars that they kind of get turned on a little bit Mm -hmm. like the sexual centers of their brain kind of light up a bit and the hypothesis is that the curves and the, you know, you imagine a sexy sports car, it's red. Red is the color of kind of blood rushing to people's faces. And it's um, when women are in fertility, they get redder lips, get redder cheeks, get, get kind of redder a little bit. And there's all these different little signs and, you know, they're also a bit more curvy and stuff. So there's all these different things, which also, also women tend to be curvy, that they may be more curvy than men which is a sign of sexual fertility as well. So there's all these different factors which like, get abstracted out into objects such as cars. Hmm. And the box example is kind of just confusing because it's, it's not curvy at all. You can hmm. see someone saying that car is sexy. 
you could say someone saying, oh, that's a sexy vase. No, probably not that. Oh, that's a sexy guitar. Mm-hmm. You know, because guitars are very curvy and tend to be that way. But sexy box is like... Mm. So we took it to like the most uh, obscure possible sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to add one last point before we go, which is I think that objectification is something that we do naturally. I, th- I think we see people as objects before we see people as people. And I think it's just it's just uh just just a normal thing. I mean, it's like a any, anything I see out in the world is an object. Until I know someone, they're kind of more of an object, you know, an, an interactive object. But it's no less than me playing Oblivion and uh, just kind of interacting with NPCs and just kind of seeing what happens. I, I'm not saying I am as, like psychopathic. That's that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying I see. I don't conceive of people as having their own mode of being and being people, but at least on some sort of perceptual level, like if I see a crowd of people, I'm not seeing each individual person. I'm not seeing each and one of their lives. I'm just seeing a thing. It's some kind of object which to interact with. As I start interacting with that thing, that's when the full person kind of comes to me as, as a thing. So I, I think that Seeing people as objects, I think, is natural. And I think people are objects because we're all, everything's an object. It's kind of, but I, I think the best way to solve any sort of objectification we have of people is to get to know them. If, if, objectif- if objectification is a uh, problem. So, what you're saying is we need to talk. N- n- not quite, but. Yeah, uh, that's what you're saying. Roll the, roll the music. <laughs> If you like this content, check out our friends at GNA Podcast. Find them in the description or on Facebook at GNA Podcast. You love them as much as we do.